Welcome to Great Loop Radio, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. This is Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA. Today we are having a safety discussion about some of the basic things you need to know and do before leaving on the Great Loop, and this is part two of a discussion we started last week. Before we jump into that, I want to take a moment to recognize and thank our Admiral sponsors who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Beneteau, Curtis Stokes & Associates, Dog River Marina, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage our listeners to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. So this week's discussion is actually part two of a topic. We ran part one last week, and this is a discussion with Dave Fuller. Dave is a gold looper, and he is also the deputy director of education for the U.S. Coast Guard Auxiliary, and that's at the national level. So in that role, he is in part responsible for producing all of the public education content for the auxiliary. So he seemed like an ideal person to bring into the discussion to help tell us what kind of are the minimum and basic levels of skill and knowledge someone should have before undertaking their Great Loop cruise. So last week we covered the kind of the mandatory things that Dave recommends and moved on to the beginning of his mid-level list, which are the things that it would be great to take that next step and attack this list as well before leaving. So we'll pick up where we left off with part of that uh, second level of skills. Dave, let's go ahead and continue with your second level um, of, you know, not as critical, but certainly very helpful things to do to prepare yourself for the loop. Okay. Well, number two on my list is to take the education that you've acquired already and then go out and actually get some helm time. Uh, Put this theoretical knowledge into practical use. And there's a whole lot of different ways of getting this. Uh, Power squadrons offer a uh, a couple of on-the-water training sessions. Uh, You might uh, inquire at your local power squadron. They can help you with that. Uh, A lot of folks uh, end up hiring a training captain. And I know AGLCA has a bunch of sponsors that are training captains. And uh, I know a couple of them personally. I don't want to single out anybody, but uh, certainly uh, hiring a training captain makes a lot of sense. Um, it uh, might be good to ask for recommendations on the forum as to, you know, who people have used and who they like. But I will tell you, you don't actually have to train on the exact boat that you're going to use for the loop. Uh, Would it be ideal? Yeah, it'd be ideal, but you don't have to do that. Um, Now, once you buy your boat uh, and you uh, start to learn the systems of your boat, you really do want to engage the services of a training captain to have you Uh, help you uh, learn the boat systems, and also each boat will handle a little bit differently. Uh, You know, you you talk about the theory of how boats handle and backing and turning and uh, windage and currents and all those things, and and how my boat handles is different from the way Kim's boat handles. You know, they all go forwards and backwards and they all turn left and right, but how you get there and how, how much effect the current or the wind has uh, it varies by boat, and you have to learn the characteristics of that particular boat. So having a training captain aboard your particular boat is a real advantage so you can learn those things. But I would tell you that if you hire a training captain before you taking a, a uh, basic education course, you're really wasting your time and your money because if they've got to teach you red-right returning, uh, 
um, it's not a good use of your time. Um, so learning the theory in the classroom and then uh, putting this to actual use with some helm time is really important. Um, and as I mentioned before, you know, you want to build competence. And once you build competence, you will build confidence. And that's what it takes to make the, the loop an enjoyable uh, experience. You know, by the time you finish the loop, you're going to have high confidence and you're going to have high competence because you will have been exposed to a whole lot of different situations in all, by definition, all of its unfamiliar waters. So um, you're going to think you're uh, 10 foot tall and bulletproof, even though you're really not. But uh, you, you really do need as much time uh, before you actually start out on the loop as possible, uh, getting that experience and, and understanding how your boat behaves and what you need to do to uh, counteract uh, unwanted behavior. You know, that's a great point, Dave. And one thing that I want to also mention, um, because I see people caught by surprise on this occasionally, um, insurance companies have become more and more strict on the amount of previous experience they require for them to insure you on your boat. And I've had a few people caught by surprise with, uh, you know, an offer and a, a successful survey on a boat and then find out that they can't get insurance because of their um, don't have enough on the water time. So if you're in the boat buying process, if you're new to boating, keep that in mind. Um, some of the companies, if you don't have the experience, may require you to have a captain aboard for a certain period of time, which of course can get costly. Um, but another great way to do that when we see people buying their looping boat and you know finding it in some place that's not close to their home port, you can actually hire a delivery and training captain. Um, some of our sponsors do both and they can move the boat give you that experience as well and, and train you on the way. So there's ways to obtain that skill, but at this point in time, insurance companies are going to require that. And one other point, Kim, is, um, you know, as I said before, people are going to acquire this experience as they go along the loop, uh, and you're going to experience adverse conditions. So my thought is, is if you can do this in your home waters area and you can get this experience at home, um, you're going to have uh, a, a lot less uh, angst and uh, you're going to feel a whole lot better at it. You know, you're going to learn these lessons at some point, but when and where that occurs is really up to you. Mm -hmm. So doing it at home makes more sense. At least to me, it does. I, I agreed for sure. What is the um, third, second level thing that you suggest people do before leaving for the loop? Okay. Uh, the last one, my third point is pretty easy and you can get this pretty much anywhere across the country. I would highly recommend you take a basic first aid uh, CPR training. The Red Cross all across the nation uh, has classes on a very regular basis, minimal cost. You'll never know when you'll need that skill. And uh, if you're going to be a, uh, uh, if you're going to end up being a, a uh, getting captain's license, that's one of the things you're going to have to have. That's part of the part of the prerequisites anyway. But I think whether or not you're going to do that or not, I, I think it just makes real good sense to be a little bit more prepared. I definitely so agree. That's, that's something we've considered adding to our rendezvous as well. Um, time always becomes a constraint. You know, we can't possibly <laughs> offer everything that people will need to prepare for the loop. Um, so we added the NASBLA course, uh, like I said, about a year ago as kind of a, a pre-rendezvous session. And there's been some requests for a first aid one too. And we may at some point be able to accommodate that. But as Dave said, those courses are readily available around the country. Um, okay. 
so uh, why don't we go ahead, Dave, and start with the third level, um, which you're kind of defining as the advanced level, but you know perhaps still something that people would want to consider before the loop. Okay, well, this is really uh, advanced level stuff. Uh, you're you're almost nudging up against professional mariner credentials. You're you're kind of at the entry level of professional mariners. So, taking advanced uh, level education, um, you know, the Power Squadron offers uh, as as high as celestial navigation using a sextant. Would you ever use that on the loop? Uh, quite frankly, no. I don't know if anybody would ever use that. But I could tell you that if you're interested enough to pursue that much education, uh, by the time you've completed all the prerequisites, you're pretty much an advanced mariner at that stage. And it's a it's kind of a dying skill. It's one that's not usually taught. Actually, the Navy quit quit teaching it for quite a while, and then uh, they had a couple of uh, big boats that ran aground uh, in embarrassing situations, and the Navy has reinstated. Uh, celestial navigation for their uh, for their uh, officers now, but um, anyway, the Atlanta Club we teach it every couple of years. There's several other uh, um, you know power squadrons across the nation that teach it. We do ours kind of in a blended class where some, we do some of it online, some of it hands-on, and then some of it is homework where you got to go out and do sites and turn those in. So uh, that's uh, advanced level education. Um, number two on my list, um, always looking to uh, recruit people, and uh, both the power squadron and the auxiliary are always looking for folks. But if you join the auxiliary and follow the operations track, you can earn your ox op, which is kind of the track to uh, uh, operational uh, proficiency. And then you can become a coxswain. Uh, that's the person that's in charge of the boat. Now, that's not an exact equivalent to a Coast Guard captain's license because they have entirely different curriculum, um, but they share a lot of the same equivalent knowledge required, including taking the exact same NAV rules test. And I will tell you, that is the significant barrier uh, to people uh, becoming a coxswain is being able to pass the NAV rules test. Not an easy test. you got to pretty much know the NAV rules by heart. Um, the biggest difference is the between a coxswain and a and a Coast Guard captain's is the coxswains have to pass a uh, every three year requalification process where they demonstrate retention of knowledge and skills with uh, classroom problem solving and then they go out and actually do the on the water uh, boat handling check ride. Um, one of the great things about the auxiliary you get to learn the Coast Guard way of doing things and of course they wrote the book on the subject. <laughs> So uh, you'll be able to also serve alongside the active duties and the programs you serve to choose in. Um, it's all volunteer, but the biggest paycheck is really the satisfaction in knowing that what you're doing is making a difference in people's lives through the prevention mission, which is pretty much what they've given to the auxiliary. Number three on my list, take a Coast Guard captain's license course. Well, a lot of schools that's out there teach to the test. Uh, and nothing wrong with that. They want to get you your credentials, and so they teach what you need to know to pass the exam. A few of them teach beyond uh, what's needed to pass, um, and certainly helpful, and certainly uh, those that are inquisitive uh, might enjoy that. But there's a lot of additional hoops and loops to jump through. Uh, you have to have attestation to uh, enough sea time for the class of license that you're 
uh, trying to seek. You have to have a medical exam. You have to pass a TWIC card. That's a transportation worker identification card. You have to go through a background check, which and all that stuff usually costs additional money. Um, a lot of people take the courses really to learn more and become more knowledgeable. And some of them use it to uh, actually make money with it. But it's it's really up to you what you uh, you do with that with that credential once you have it. At the end of the day, there's no question you'll be a more confident and competent uh, voter once you go through all that you have to go through to earn the license. You know, is it worth it? I think if you talk to most uh, people that hold that credential, they will tell you, yeah, it was worth it, even all of the stuff they had to go through. But it's really subjective. Each each person has to answer it for themselves. All right. So we've been through the three different levels of uh, skill levels, essentially, your knowledge levels that Dave is recommending for doing the Great Loop, from the must-haves to the kind of nice-to-have to build your confidence and competence, um, and then the advanced level. Let's kind of shift now, and, and we covered this a little bit in the previous discussion, but uh, is there a minimum amount of experience aboard a vessel or some other benchmark that, in your opinion, Dave, you would recommend for somebody to be, do in order to be safe on the loop? Well, Kim, that's really a difficult question because it's so highly variable. As most uh, people coming to the loop have various life experiences, and they can, uh, uh, and uh, they've also had experiences with uh, making uh, decision making, um, but. Uh, I would say that probably most of them have a have a, a common sense as well to get them through, you know, where they don't know. But this is really important. Knowing what you don't know is critical, and then do something about that. So those folks who who say just blissfully cast off the lines and you know keep turning left until you get back to where you started, that's probably not really a good plan because they're really uh, counting on luck more than skill, and I would much rather have skill over luck. But understand that no matter how much time, how much preparation, how much education, how much hands-on training that you have before you start the loop, you're still going to encounter new-to-you challenges. And if you draw on the experience of others, and you draw on your own knowledge and your own life experiences, and you couple that with good situational awareness, very important ingredient you're probably going to make the right call most of the time. So if you get to a spot and you're really not sure, just lean to the conservative side. Don't stick your neck out too far. But never forget the lesson of the Challengers, <clears throat> uh, the Space Shuttle Challenger, which is one of the case study lessons I teach in risk management for the Coast Guard. Uh, NASA and the supplier of the solid rocket boosters knew that they had a design problem with the O-rings that sealed the solid rocket booster sections together. They knew that this was a no-fly condition, but despite the warnings of the engineers, they decided to launch anyway. They had experienced partial failure in multiple flights before Challenger was lost along with the crew, and they made a couple of minor changes to the assembly process, which they expected would provide a solution. And this was in stark contrast disagreement in contrast to the design engineer's insistence that the problem was not solved and it would require a new engineering solution. So under the intense pressure to deliver the number of launches promised to Congress and the politicians who write the checks, 
they were laboring under something called the normalization of deviance. And some of your listeners that are pilots already know what that means. But basically, for the rest of you, that means that there's a standard of performance that was established as the minimal requirement for safety. Shortcuts have been taken, and they've gotten away with it. And so the standard uh, of performance was ignored. And this usually occurs gradually and kind of manifests itself as an incremental slippage from the original standard of performance. So one rationalization after another, the initial performance standard has been deviated and normalized because the outcome seems to justify and confirm the changes made worked, when in fact, the original design problem remains and is still a no-fly condition. The interesting note is around 50% of all shuttle flights experienced some minor to major degree of degradation of the O-rings, which should suggest to a layman like me that doesn't know anything about engineering that they should go back to the drawing board. But just because NASA got away with it several times before um, including a, uh, a near exact failure of one of the two O-rings on the second shuttle flight, they proceeded to launch Challenger anyway. The estimate was the disaster was five to 10 seconds away from occurring on that second flight. The reason for launching Challenger that fateful day was they got away with it several times before, so why think this one was any different? The result of ignoring the standard of a no-fly condition was an aerodynamic failure of the solid rocket booster strut, causing the solid rocket booster to tilt inward into the fuel tank and the shuttle basically shredded itself aerodynamically. There was really no explosion, even though it looked like one occurred. The engineer that warned them about the failure was only off by 73 seconds, as he thought the whole thing would blow up on the launch pad. The lesson for loopers from this example is that just because we experienced similar adverse conditions 30 times before now, we should not feel overly confident that number 31 will go okay as well. Just because you've gotten away with it previously, each instance is unique, and it requires you to analyze each instance. Understand that you will be in new-to-you conditions in new-to-you waters without the benefit of local knowledge and familiarity. And so once you understand that limitation, you should be a little more cautious and a little bit more conservative on go versus no-go decisions. So, again, be patient and wait for things to improve. And you've probably already heard this, and if not, you'll hear it a lot of times. That's never have a schedule, but do have a plan. Well, and I, I love that you added do have a plan to the end of that, Dave, because I do frequently hear never have a schedule, and we as an organization preach that constantly, um, but don't often hear the do have a plan on the end of that. So thank you for adding that. This seems like a good spot to take a break and play a message from one of our sponsors. When we come back, we'll continue with part two of our discussion with Dave Fuller on the things you need to know and do to safely cruise the Great Loop. AGLCA Admiral Sponsored Dog River Marina is located at the mouth of the Tentom Waterway in Mobile, Alabama, only 22 miles from the Gulf of Mexico. The marina encompasses 95 slips, 80 of which are sheltered. They offer a ship store, courtesy car, rental cars, 24-hour guard service, and shore power. 
The complex's full-service repair facility is staffed with highly trained personnel to handle everything from simple repairs to complex overhauls. For more information, visit www.dogriver.com. We're back on Great Loop Radio. We're chatting today with Dave Fuller. This is part two of our session on the basic things that you need to do to prepare yourself for the Great Loop from both a skills and knowledge standpoint. Dave, in our earlier discussion, you talked about some of the mistakes you've seen on vessel safety checks, one being not properly installing the CO2 cartridge on a PFD uh, that is inflatable. What other mistakes have you seen that perhaps could be avoided uh, with a little bit more preparation, or what safety mistakes do you see potential loopers making out there? Well, actually, Cam, that one's pretty easy. <laughs> it's really simple. Most people simply don't know what they don't know. And I made that reference a couple of times already today. No one on the loop, they want, nobody, nobody wants anything to go wrong, or they don't want to have a bad experience because, you know, it happens because they just don't know any better. Um, yeah, there are some yahoos out there who want to make trouble. Some have a high level of testosterone. Some of them have more money than common sense, but those folks really are in the minority. You know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Know what you don't know and then try and do something about it. You and your crew will be more competent and confident. And once you achieve that, you're going to have a whole lot more fun. Right. And you kind of described in the space shuttle example, um, you know, that things can go well repeatedly, um, but it really just kind of takes one time for something to go wrong. And I know um, you're a fan of Mario Vitone, as am I, and he has that theory, you know, um, you're preparing for that one bad day because that's all it takes for there to be uh, an issue. So, you know, we've kind of talked about the must-dos, but any other resources that you would suggest for people to learn up or brush up? on, um, you know, some of the, the, the best practices for boating safety? Well, just kind of as a, uh, you know, a little bit of a recap, get the basic education uh, for you and your crew, not just you, but everybody should go through that so everybody's on the same page. And especially those that have had a boating safety course, but maybe it's been a few years, uh, take another one. Um, if you're anything like me, uh, you don't recall everything that you were <laughs> told last week, last month, or 10 years ago. So uh, get a refresher. And we've even had people in our classes come in that have captain's license taking the basic course again as a refresher. And they tell us that they've learned things that they didn't know before. And that's people that have credentials. So um, get some on-the-water time with a competent instructor. Read as many books as you can. Attend the rendezvous. Get educated there. Um, you're going to learn something new just about every week on the loop. And if you're like me and sometimes you're a slow learner, you might need to learn the same lesson multiple times. I won't go into all the things <laughs> that I've had to learn multiple times. And I think if you talk to any experienced uh, boater, you're going to find that same story. But, um, you know, the, the trick is to minimize the challenges and maximize rewards. You know, at some point in time, you're going to run aground somewhere on the loop, and if you're skilled, uh, maybe it won't happen very often. If you're lucky, maybe it won't happen at all. But um, it, it's possible to know that it's going to happen more than once. So embrace ch uh, a challenge, but be prepared. You know, the Boy Scouts have been teaching that for how many years now? Uh, a lot of years. So the same logic applies to loopers. 
And as I mentioned before, always maintain situational awareness. Get your crew to help you. Uh, you really get information overload by trying to watch too many things at once. And you tend to get tunnel vision and uh, lose sight of all the other things that's going on, especially when you're in a busy harbor. Um, thinking New York Harbor is a perfect example of that with ferries crossing back and forth and all kinds of traffic and things are coming at you from 360 degrees and you got to sort them all out. So get your crew to help you uh, maintain your situational awareness and shift some of that workload to them. Very important. Okay. And any kind of final tips, you know, as we say, every day on the Great Loop, once you leave your own waters is unfamiliar waters. So any tips or what would you say to somebody who does have a lot of boating experience, but kind of all, you know, within a few miles of their home port? Any suggestions for them? Well, get as much helm time as you can uh, before you get started. Uh, you're always going to have those new-to-you challenges, and if you experience them close to home, they're usually a little less traumatic, and uh, they kind of better prepare you for the unknown uh, in the unfamiliar waters. As you build confidence and uh, you will gain confidence, and that's real critical to maximizing the fun factor. There's really no shortcut to experience, and you're going to have a boatload of it by the time you complete the loop, but get as much of it as you can before you cast off the lines. You know, the loop is really uh, a, a series of day trips uh, with uh, sometimes some long pauses due to several factors with weather being number one. Uh, don't be intimidated by the enormity of the loop. You know, it's a lot of miles, but you're going to be doing it in bite-sized chunks. And just, just remember that. A little bit here, a little bit there, and before you know it, you're going to be back to where you started. Uh, know that uh, weather is going to be your biggest factor that's going to create uh, uh, delays for you. Be patient. And if you haven't developed patience, uh, you will <laughs> by the time uh, you you uh, are partway through the loop. Uh, either that or you're going to have a real unhappy crew on, <laughs> on your boat. Know that your boat will handle much more adverse conditions than the crew will uh, be able to stand. So learn those limitations in your home waters and what's a go versus a no-go. Uh, again, every boat handles a little bit differently, and depending on its configuration, you know, one to two foot may be good, good enough, three to four may be marginal, five foot or more is definitely a no-go, but for another boat, it might be one to two is all you can take. So you have to learn what that limitation is of, of as much as you have. So um, that's about it. Uh, get get as much experience as you can on the boat that you plan to use for the trip. Okay. Dave, I want to thank you for taking on this topic because it was challenging for a lot of reasons. Um, one, you know, we could probably spend a full podcast episode on each one of the bullet points that we covered. Um, but it's also a challenging topic because, as I mentioned, there are two schools of thought and, and lots in between based on, you know, just getting and go versus having a lifetime of, of experience. So th thank you for sharing you know, kind of your ideas on some of the must-dos and, and the nice things to do to help prepare yourself. Any final thoughts before we, we wrap up? Well, Kim, I just wanted to thank uh, AGLCA and, and uh, your mom and dad that actually got us involved in this. Uh, goes back to those days. Yeah. It's, it's been a, a fantastic resource for the really the paltry amount of money that you're asking members to pay up. <laughs> uh, you're getting... You're getting a heck of a deal, 
I agree. Uh, <laughs> you know, nowhere else are, are you going to find a collection of experts on every boating topic that pertains to recreational boating and those folks that are willing to freely share their priceless knowledge via the forum. You know, it's it's probably, in my opinion, it's, it's the most important benefit for any new member as you learn, you know, what you need to know. And it's really critical for those without boating backgrounds. You know, if you ask a question, it'll get answered. Um, the rendezvous, they are just an absolute golden opportunity to learn firsthand from the been there, done that, got my platinum and gold uh, uh, looper flag members, the people that's, that's been it. Um, you know, don't forget the sponsors. Don't forget all the services they offer. Most of them have some kind of a deal for uh, for, looper, <clears throat> for loopers. Um, you know, they support us, so we need to, to uh, support them to keep this thing going. And I will tell you that I think that the truly hidden gem that, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of boaters don't take advantage of are, are the harbor hosts. Those folks are the unsung heroes of this of this organization. You know, they're very special people who have agreed to assist the loopers as they come around to their areas for just about anything they need. And uh, if you don't use them when you're doing the loop, you're really missing a wealth of local information and help when you need it. You know, when Nan Ellen and I did the loop, we had probably our greatest enjoyment came from all of the local knowledge of things that weren't in the guidebooks that were suggested by the dock masters of some of the marinas and, of course, from the harbor hosts. You know, local knowledge is absolutely priceless, and uh, those things will make almost as many memories as all the people that you meet along the way, and some of those are going to become lifelong friends for you. So, you know, when, when people ask me, says, why in the heck do you do all this? You know, you got all this other volunteer stuff going on. Why are you doing it? And the way I look at it is the folks that came before me shared their knowledge and their experience with me and, and Ellen, of course, and, and now it's my opportunity to share my knowledge and experience with, uh, with those that have yet to experience the trip of a lifetime. And I hope that uh, as you do the loop uh, and you gain this experience and knowledge that you'll be willing to uh, share that uh, with those who come after you. So that's it, Tim. Well, very well said, Dave. Um, I have nothing to add to that because you really covered kind of the essence of the organization, and thank you for the plug. Um, but thanks again for your time and for joining us on Great Loop Radio, and happy holidays to you and Nan Ellen. Thank you, Cam. Good day. Yeah, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us once again. We'll be back next week with another episode of Great Loop Radio. Until then, safe cruising. Mm-hmm.